Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media and virtual production. Second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today, uh, we are spending more time on more and more questions. <laughs> I believe so. Is that, is, did, did, I, did I get that right? Um, let's see here. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you've got uh, more questions, this is going to be uh, um, a long question day. So I know you have a bunch building up. You're getting close to Christmas break and you're trying to think about all the things you want to do during Christmas. I don't know what your Christmas is like. My Christmas is usually like, hey, no one's calling me. So let's get into a whole bunch of projects. <laughs> so, so anyway, that's what mine usually looks like. I did get USB uh, controlled lights for my Christmas tree, which was at least an hour of fun yesterday. Anyway, um, uh, so there you go. So let's go jump into the questions. Bill, what do we got? Our first one this morning comes from Paul Terry, Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. He says, in after hours, I enabled HDR on the Insta360 link with surprisingly good results. But Charles Klein questioned if this is genuine HDR. What are the other link users' views on HDR? Like, for example, Courtney Alex and others. It's it's not HDR. I mean, it's not HDR in the sense that like it's not HLG or HDR10. It's really what we would consider more tone mapping. So it may be taking two, stretching those values a little bit out, and you know being able to pull some of the highlights in. But it's what Apple used to call HDR before they had real HDR. Apple would call things HDR, and really what 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 we're talking about there is tone mapping, um, and uh, and it probably does that fairly well. But I don't think it's actual HDR. Okay. Next question. Uh, Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. Morning, guys. What's the official verdict on the Behringer Bigfoot? Is it a go for small remote kits? And how dynamic is this, Mike? I think we should try it. Hold on a second here. I, I wasn't ready for that question until I jumped in. I apologize. I was I was doing a test for I was doing a test. <laughs> I was doing a camera test that needed to get done to this morning before the show, and I got a little behind. Um, so here it is. This is the Bigfoot. Um, I ordered it, and it came in yesterday. I think. Um, so this is the Bigfoot. Looks a lot like a Yeti. Um, it is. Uh, it's, I don't think it sounds like a Yeti. <laughs> it sounds. It, it's a little less, a little less than a Yeti, but it's a lot is it less top in cost. End or middle or what? What is it, Alex? What What are you hearing? Let's try it. Hold on. Oh, okay. Hold on. It'll just take me a second here, so I get the. Let's see here. So you're, now, it's not fair that you're listening to me with this mic, which is a. This is the Stellar X2, which is going to be considerably a better mic than than this little one, but. But anyway, but we'll uh, we'll do it anyway. Um, so so we've got this mic in here, and then I'm going to I'm gonna have to switch my headset out so I can hear myself. Hold on a second. This is this is a fascinating test to see which one sounds different, and maybe for those of you at home who who are trying to collect mics, you'll see huh. or hear a little bit of the difference. Let's see yeah. if I can. I just want to set. Give me one second here. I'm going to switch my thing. I might not be able to hear you for a second. Can you hear me? Yes, you just came back on. Okay. Already, uh, one design problem is that it's a mini, XR, a mini USB 
Um, and it is placed in a way that when I moved it to put my headset in, I nearly sheared off the USB. <laughs> so, oh, so it's, ouch. so it's, it is, it is now bent like 90 degrees, but still obviously still working. Um, I'm sure that I have a thousand mini. These are not micro. It's the old mini. So it's an old one there. So this is the, uh, now this is, this has got the different settings. And so I have a volume, I have, uh, that's my, that's my headphone volume here. So let's see, where am I going? I'm about, okay. So. And then I have I have gain up here, so I can uh, I can bring the gain down a little bit. And now I'm going to be talking into this and trying to get the gain to be somewhere near normal. Um, you're going to hear some hand movement because I'm holding it because I don't really have a way to mount it at the moment. Um, all right, so there it is. It's probably pretty close to the normal volume that we'd have in the in here. And there's a couple settings in the back. Um, so. So this is one. This is one that has like the double loop on top of it. I think it's kind of the overlap stereo there. Yeah, the figure eight there. So this that's what this is right here. You hear that on that side? This one is this is Omni. So this is what Omni sounds like. This is what the cardioid sounds like. Alex, do you have original sound on or off? Oh, it was on. I it literally was on until I changed the mic. So um, let's try this again. So so here is the figure eight. Uh, so this is the figure eight here. This is the uh, this is the um. Is this right? Of course, they put it on the other side. I don't really know why. Try not anyway. to do that too much. That actually pops through the ears. What yeah, there's definitely through? a lot of handling noise. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so um, so this is the the this is the uh, Omni. This is the cardioid. So the cardioid, you know, this, you know, there this sounds like a cardioid. And this is the last one that I don't know what it means. <laughs> it's a, uh, no, this is the figure eight. The other one was like an overlapped figure eight, overlapped pieces there. This is the figure eight here. So you'll probably hear a lot on the other side. So that again, setting sounds the most natural. It does, except that it. it does, but I, it's a, it is the, it is the two next to each other. So I think that it's as, as sensitive on the back as it is on the front. So you probably have to be in a very quiet room to have this actually work. So the one that sounds the best, in my opinion, is the one that you could almost never send out to have somebody use <laughs> because the rest of their room would, I have a quiet, you know, I, I am literally in a, a, a tent of blankets. So, so um, it works okay here. Um, but uh, anyway, so that's the, then this is again the, the cardioid. Um, so this is the cardioid here, um, a little bit more focus there. This is the Omni. Uh, this is, and I don't think that it feels like it's just phasing back and forth or something. I don't know. Exactly yeah. You lost a on. lot of bottom end and it yeah. became much. And then this is the one that's kind of the overlapped and I don't know what the overlap circles mean. Um, I don't know. I, I know the, I know what all the other ones mean except for this one. <laughs> so, so anyway, so, um, anyway, that's the, that's what it, that's what it sounds like. You know, for thirty dollars, I don't think it's you know for twenty seven dollars or thirty dollars or whatever. I think that it's not a. Uh, it, it it would be a fine. It'd be an okay mic. It'd be better than someone's built in mic that they had and they'd set on the on you know the you know. So I think that it's better than nothing at thirty dollars. Um, I don't know if it's. I, I I'm not a huge fan of the Yeti. <laughs> it's okay uh, with some EQ anyway. So, um, but uh, uh, so you know, if I was going to send something, what I really wanted to do was buy it because if it really worked well and I thought that I could get it to work to do well, 
this is really a great one for podcasts where you just send it to them and just say, keep it. <laughs> like it's, it's more expensive to send it back. Or you can super glue it, as you uh, have been known to do. It is, but the problem is I can't decide which one I want to use because the one that sounds the best, ah, this one here sounds the best by far. Um, but uh, the, the problem there is that this one sounds far, um, uh, the best, but the problem is, is that you're going to be able to hear that's that's just me tapping on the other side of it. Yeah, if so, it's right next to your laptop and your laptop has a fan yeah. in it, you'd be dead. Yeah, so I, I I just don't know if there's a if there's a version of this that I would that I would want to use. I think that's the problem. There's a, there's a setting that I'd want to use. So I don't know. It'll go into the. I'm 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 trying to catch up with Paul, and I, I you know by the end of, by end of 2023, I think I'll have as many mics as Paul. So I keep on doing these tests, but um, trying not to go. Uh, doing lots of tests with really expensive mics, but I'm always in the, on the hunt for a, a mic that we can send out to people that I don't have to ask for back, which would be anything sub $50. And I haven't really found anything yet that I would replace the MB7s with. So, so anyway, so we're continuing to work on it. All right. Uh, hold on. Let's see. Hashid. Yeah. So I heard this uh, when it got brought into After Hours. It's really thin sounding and that overlapping uh icon that you see is stereo um okay. <clears throat> so between the, the the variation the different polar patterns and stuff yes i'm not a fan of the yetis either this is a total replicate of it to get somebody into a yeti for a cheaper cost yeah so for for what it's worth um you know for i think it's house of worship as uh, the question is stated here so i would kind of veer off of this the samson q2u or the q9u could be a better choice at 60 or 80 bucks or mm. i think the q9u is a little bit more expensive but you'd be better off if you just get a nice cardioid like that, that'll give you that good uh, representation of what it needs to do for the cheaper cost. Uh, this microphone is good, but like I said, it's thin sounding. Uh, we've tried it, and for women's voices, it might be a little bit better. Um, with uh, mm. with Alex's voice, it's a little deep, and it does thin out a lot of uh, tones in there. So, I go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, can we hear that stereo again? I, I didn't, at least in that quick test, notice anything. You know, maybe we can do like the, you know, can you hear the one side, the other side? Yeah, I don't I don't really know. It, it sounds like it's going just bouncing back and forth when I do it. I don't know if you can hear that, but for me, the stereo is, is I mean, it's figuring it out, I guess. Oh, yeah, but we're getting it. It's, yeah. yeah, so if I talk over on this side and I talk over on this side, but it feels really weird. Like, it doesn't feel like stereo to me. It feels like it's out of phase. It's like some kind of phasing issue. So and, and yeah, so it goes stereo, cardioid, stereo, omni. So it's and then stereo, directional, and then this is omni. No, that um, second is cardioid. Uh, really? Those clicks are yeah. really tough when you click them into. Oh, then turn it off. <laughs> like, like I can handle it because I'm listening to it directly. So um, the uh, so the uh, I, I don't know how. It, sometimes it clicks and sometimes it doesn't. I don't know how to do that. So I don't know how to get between each one without doing that. Um, anyway, so. Uh, this is the Omni. It's a full circle. And then this is the one, the next one is the cardioid. That's the cardioid there. And it definitely sounds like a cardioid. So, um, yeah, so that definitely doesn't sound like an, an Omni. The, the last one sounded like an Omni. So I don't know, you know, then, then the last one, the, I think the last one is forward back, right? So it's, it's this one and I sound the same, maybe even better on this side. And then on this side, they're both, they're both about the same. So it just goes, it's, it's picking up, it's just a figure eight pattern. So, so I, again, it sounds not bad when you're in the one that you couldn't use anywhere other than a, a studio. <laughs> so I guess that's what I would say. Um, you know, so, so it's, uh, 
Uh, you know, it's a good experiment. Uh, and that's the cardioid. This right now, no, this one is the, this is the, the, the dual circle setting. This is, I think, front and back. Bidirectional, okay. Bidirectional so that you can, you could talk to someone, you put it on a desk. But the problem is when you put it down here, I mean, it's not, it's not horrible, but I mean, I don't know. I'll turn this up a little bit. So if I turn this up, I mean, now you're getting, once I turn it, once it's on a, on the desk, which is what a lot of people are going to do, and maybe some average people might be a little bit higher. I don't have anything to set it on here. It's comb filtering like crazy when on your desk. Yeah. So, so this is, eh, it's not that bad. I mean, it's not, it's not a horrible thing to do. Um, but, but remember that I'm in a space that I have blankets around. Um, I have soft surfaces, five of six sides. The only side that doesn't have a soft surface is a shelf. So it's a complex surface. And so if you put this in someone's regular house, it probably would be problematic. And you know what? For $27, let them get two if they're doing an interview. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I would never use the, the front back. I, I don't use that ever. Um, but I think that it would be, uh, yeah, I think that um, the problem really is, is that the amount of work that you have to do to clean up stuff when people get a bad mic I, I, you know, I, at some point I value my time, you know, that I have to, I'm going to have to deal with whatever the mic is doing and that, that becomes the, the issue. Yeah. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to it more and more and I'm thinking that that's not good for, it's good if, if you're just starting out with that, but uh, I wouldn't even give that to somebody as a, as a microphone. The biggest problem is it's a 16 bit. <laughs> It's a, yeah. The biggest I, thought, thing I thought you said. 16. I, thought, I, I thought I thought you were saying I wouldn't even give this away as a gift. I <laughs> that's would. What I, that's what I heard. No, my, my, I, would my, I was I anticipating not. you saying. Yeah. The first yeah. problem is it's a it's a 16-bit microphone, and that's not going to change. It's got old technology, yeah. and that as we saw with the USB drive and our the USB uh, plug, and the biggest problem is it's table mounted. And when you got a remote, now guest to be fair, card, you got that remote mounted that. The, you, you just don't know where that microphone's going to be. To be fair, problem. To be fair, that you can undo the. It has a three eighths that inserts into a standard mic fitting in the bottom of it, so you can put it on an arm. You know, you can put it on an arm you or can, put it on a stand. But are you going? Are you going to give them the arm as well, or just the microphone? No, I'm not going to do that. We we give them a stand, but yeah. I could give them a stand. I could give them a stand and have this on it, and it would be what it is. Um, but we we do that with the MV7 as well. Um, so anyway, that, there you go. That's that's our that's our um, very informal. Uh, let's play around on the show with a mic. <laughs> so uh, let's go to the next question. Next one comes to us from Matthias Hulia in Helsinki, Finland, or Jutila. I'm sorry, and uh, he says how to convert 1080p 50 video in Nepal region to match the streaming platform he's working with, which is 30p. For example, when producing a 50p signal from an ATEM Mini, but services like Vimeo wants to stream it in 30p. Are there any hardware solutions to convert the frame rate? And he's looking for a budget solution for ATEM Mini users. So the best way to do that is to set your uh, unless you it depends on what you want do with that footage afterwards so the best thing for you to do is to um shoot do your event in 30p <laughs> like, like just do you know run your cameras at 30p you may have some strobing because of the shutter so you have to sh slow the shutter down to be under 50 frames a second um so right your a, a 180 shutter will be 1 60th of a of a second which will strobe and so you'll need to lower that down to a 360 or a 270 to to get under the um, the 50 uh, frame, um, you know, issue, it's the cycles of your, your electricity. Um, if you need to use it later at 50p, if that's what, if that's the issue that you're having, 
then you you know you can really just use an ATEM to to make that conversion. It's going to be a little bit. It's got the Terranex technology in it. It's going to be a little chunky, but to get it better is going to cost a lot of money, like thousand, a couple thousand dollars, you know, to, or fifteen hundred dollars to have any hardware that's going to do any better than the ATEM Mini. So if you set the ATEM Mini at um, thirty and then you run your show you should find that and then record in the cameras if you actually want to use that footage later um, but set your set your atem at 30 and that's going to be the fastest way to connect um, convert but you really want to deliver it if you can or you can let the servers at vimeo just make the conversion for you i mean they will take 50 and just convert it to 30 um, but i find that the mini will do better than than their servers um, next question Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael, and Douglas asks, Netflix recommends the LG OLED CX and the Sony OLED A9F or A9G models for remote HDR post-production work. What TV brands and or models do the panel recommend for high-quality HDR at home? Uh, go ahead, Tom. Well, I've got a LG C-Series OLED, and if you're going to go this direction, though, you need to watch a... YouTube channel called HDTV Test. Uh, he's got a little uh, video there called Five Bizarre Problems That Affect Only OLED TVs. And you need one of these. This is the red key. Okay, it's a factory service remote, and it allows you to go in and change temporal peak luminance control. Uh, I'll show you where to get that remote if you want to get one. But there is a warning with this. This will void your warranty. Uh, I haven't had any burn-in problems with that, but what it does is it allows the TV to not make those automatic corrections when it sees HDR. Go ahead, guys. Sorry, that switch, the mic switch didn't quite work. Yeah, there's a reason why we're expensive friends. You didn't, you didn't say a limit, so here's Charles... The reason why he's got the 11,000 on his uh, number is this model is the Flanders Scientific's XMF or 55 2U, and that is $11,000 for what he uses. So there you go. Makes a great kitchen TV. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. And the the LG the LG probably does the best um, of most of the monitors that I've that I've seen. Um, we've we've had some LG monitors there. The CX line is is really good for a home for a home uh, tv the um the main thing is is you do want to have dolby vision and preferably dolby vision iq if you can get it um just because it, it is going to look a lot better um if, if you if you have those that processing there um, but i will admit that in my office one that i haven't used that much because it's on the other side of the tent now um is a vizio and it was a it was a vizio 75 inch and i thought the colors looked pretty good you know, like I thought it was, and it was relatively inexpensive. I think when I bought it, it was like $1,400 or something like that. Go ahead, Jeff. That just made me realize a uh, quick sidebar. You know, there's the longstanding unit of financial measurement called the Alex. And I wonder if uh, there's a guy and which one, you know, what the, uh, what the equation is there. Uh, you know, I don't, I, you know, I, I think that, you know, I, I, at this point I would be, um, uh, yeah, let's take that down. There's some stuff there I don't want to put in. Take the, yeah. Um, uh, the um, there is uh, what was I going to say? Um, yeah, <laughs> the Alex means seven hundred dollars. Uh, yeah, there's yeah. The, anyway, let's go to the next question. 
Uh, the next question comes to us from Laura Thompson in Beaumont, Texas. And Laura says, how complicated is it to move a stream deck from one computer to another? For example, if I had one and I took it between my home and office. Go ahead, Jeffrey. The, the complexity only it really occurs if you are going from a Windows machine to a Mac machine. Uh, but uh, for the most part, you can export all the profiles, uh, bring it in if you have the same hardware on the and, and the home machine, you bring it in. And then you just have to reconfigure a couple things uh, like location. If you're, if you're doing folders or something like that, uh, and button presses for folders, you have to change the locations on that. And then the big thing, uh, one thing that I highly recommend that you do is there's a configuration folder in Windows and in Mac. Take that folder and copy it out of there that way. Because I just had this happen yesterday where I turned on my computer and my stream deck just wiped the, the profile. And then I had to start over from scratch. So by, uh, by pulling that profile out and then pushing it right back in, uh, then you've got that. And of course, like I said, export all your, uh, all your profiles and it'll work pretty well. Next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael, and he says, the PCX model was we create events that bring people together. While we all love discussing the latest tools and technologies, what do you think is the most important element that brings people together in the spaces we create? Good, Bill. I just think it's shared interests. I mean, all communities form around this idea that we've got a bunch of people and they're all interested in the same topic and want to get together and discuss it. So it could be something, you know, entirely different for each individual person. You know, I have no interest in quilting, although I've been uh, looked at a few quilts and went, man, that's amazing work. But I do not want to steep myself in that world. I admire people who do, but it's not for me. Now, I'm on the technology side of things. And the, from the first day I showed up here, it was like, I found my tribe. These people love to talk about exactly what I'm interested in. So I'm constantly engaged. So I think it's that shared interest in a particular topic that forms the nucleus of community building. And, and I would expand on that a little bit to say, I think Bill's totally right that it's a shared interest, but it's what, what makes it a community is the conversation. And then what deepens that community is action, doing things with each other. So if you're doing things with each other, if you're learning from each other, and if you're conversing with each other, you're building that con you're building that community, you know, and that's what the, and that's what we do here. <laughs> and we, and we don't get caught up in too many other things other than, <laughs> then let's do things together. Let's talk about it. Let's learn from each other. Those are the things that, that make in my my opinion after 30 or 30 years working on it is those are the big things that make a community a community uh, next question uh serge blondin in montreal canada says please explain why 16-bit microphones could be a problem if most voice audio can easily fit in the 16-bit uh wrapper go ahead mitchell there's not that many microphones that have onboard processing that would limit it to 16-bit but 16-bit as a general rule um, is a limited dynamic range. And if you're comparing it to like a CD or things like that, that's something that's been processed and uh, made to fit into that 16-bit window. Uh, if you're out there recording, there's a lot of situations that could come up where you exceed that dynamic range very easily. And that's why you see people using 32-bit recorders because they don't have to worry so much about overdriving their, uh, their system. If they have the dynamic range, they can deal with that in post. I go ahead, Jeffrey. 
Yeah, the dynamic range is the biggest thing. Uh, the 16-bit is 96 uh, decibels, whereas the 24-bit is 144 decibels. The other thing is the levels of information that come in, the bits of information that come in. If you're talking CD, you just want CD quality, then 16-bit is perfect. But as we get into things like spatial audio and things like that, you're going to really start to hear how 16-bit is just... It, it's going to sound like, you know, when, when you hear uh, six. Uh, well, uh, when you hear audio, old MP3 audio, where the cymbals hit and you hear this type sound, you're going to hear that uh, when we start getting into bigger and better systems in the future. So getting, getting away from 16-bit is a good idea. And the other thing is if you start mixing and matching your, your microphones, 16-bit could actually affect in the recording because it might sound like you're speaking slower. Well, that can be converted. <laughs> so, so, yeah. but, but I, you know, I think that the, the, the real issue is, is that, is that if, as, as Mickey pointed out in the event chat, um, is, is that if you have to convert it to anything else, you know, you're basically 16 bit is a delivery level that's okay, but not a recording level. You want to record at a higher bit rate so that you have room to work. You have room to move things around. It, it doesn't give you any room in post. So if you get a perfect recording, you can probably get away with 16-bit. It's plenty. It's plenty of dB and a plenty of of, uh, of range to capture the human voice. It's just that you can't do anything with it later. It's like capturing everything in JPEG. <laughs> you know, you and you and many of us do on our iPhone uh, might capture things on JPEG, but it means that you can't really edit it any later <laughs> at all later because you don't have any any headroom at all. Um, so 24-bit or uh, I just recorded something recently on 32-bit float um, and uh, 192. <laughs> you know, um, sample rate, um, because I wanted to know there was a little bit, I, I knew that the recording wasn't perfect. And I was like, I'm going to grab all the data from this, this recording so that I can go back and, and play with it a little bit. And I might actually be able to play with it with, hopefully if Mickey has a little time at some point, we'll, well maybe we'll open it up and, and, and uh, see if we can't remove the, the, uh, 60 cycle hum. <laughs> that was, that was, a, that we could not get rid of before the show started. It was a friend's show. It was a couple of people playing with guitars. It wasn't like a, a show show. Um, but I, I was like, hey, this is a good experiment to play with my little mix pre and turn it all the way up. No, not all the way up, but a lot more than normal. So we'll, we'll, we'll play with that in the future. Next question. Next one comes to us from Paul Wallace again in Austin, Texas. Time he says, can Guy Cochran tell us about his behind-the-scenes walk around the Seahawks Stadium with Bo Cordell? Will there be a follow-up in office hours? And he notes, just for those of you who are fans, the 49ers and Seahawks game is tomorrow at 7.15 Central. Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, that's one of the coolest things about this community is getting to meet people in person. So I got to meet Bo. He invited me down there to take a look at the the truck. And it's not just a truck. It's the most advanced truck in the nation, if not the world. So there was five or six of them. So we're talking about uh, Thursday night football. Uh, just just the EVS room alone. I mean, they had so many feeds. You can see what these things look like. It's just it's mind-boggling that this is 4K HDR uh, capable. They're not broadcasting right now in, in, in that. But, I mean, look like this machine room. You got some AJF SDRs, uh, Fletcher, uh, the robo room. Man, that was the other thing. There, there's so much. I could go into a whole second hour. Uh, I don't think we will. But just behind the scenes of these trucks, seeing the the uh, amount of data that they can pass through. They got a 100 gigabit connection directly pushing out uh over 180 80, uh, machine uh, records. Uh, let me close that. Close. Yeah, that's the outside of the truck. So double expandos. Uh, I think there was six of them. So I think that one was the Robo. No, that one was EVS. 
now an audio. Let me, let me show you this Calrec. Oh my gosh. That's the Calrec <laughs> Apollo. I don't even want to know how much, but Mickey would love the speakers in the ceiling. JBL's there. Neumann. Uh, those are Neumann's there. Uh, there's the patch panel. <laughs> Um, and they had comms, RTS comms here. And uh, backup, let's see, more cables. I think this was the backup one. They had a backup CalRec. I mean, just like the Nick, yeah, this is the backup. Uh, let's see, there's some, oh yeah, here's all the shaders. <laughs> I mean, this is so crazy. Let's see. Yeah, and I like these little nubs. Uh, one of the guys that's stuck on the buttons. So for those of you Stream Deck users uh, or things oh. that have surfaces, being able to, yeah. Tactile cues. Yeah, and I was looking for something like this. I think that they're just those things that you put on your cabinets. I'm, I don't know. If yeah, somebody little knows, put cabinet it in the foots. Yeah, nice. I think that's what they are. I don't know. But he had them all the way down the, down the line. Let me see if I could find something else. Oh, here's the one that you all want to see. Boom. There is the... Uh, Grass Valley Switcher. There's just a, a few buttons, a few little blinkity blinky buttons there. And uh, we actually got to walk the field as well and uh, see uh, in after hours. For those that were watching, we we got to see some of the uh, uh, how some of the graphics are made. So that was really cool. So this is for the game tomorrow night, Thursday night. Um, let's see one more room. Oh yeah, here's the Robo. Some of the robo cam stuff so here's the fletcher and they had one that you can kind of make it out i need to get a new phone it already compressed my images otherwise this would be sharp and you'd be able to see that that's the uh, panasonic controller a lot of robo cams some of the other trucks that were outside there's thursday night football and that's the stadium oh yeah and then massive power like the power alone was just insane with the diesel generators i think i got a couple shots yeah. So that company was uh, Film Filmworks does the power to two uh, UPS and two diesel generator trucks for power. Oh, and that's my dog. Oh, let's go back. I think that's the end of. That's the stadium. More of the trucks behind the scenes. Oh, yeah, there's the uh, generator. You guys getting bored yet? Or are you loving this? Oh yeah, there's me and Bo. There's both nice. the man the myth the legend in person and oh yeah this was kind of cool and it, they had a engineering area where behind the scenes uh you know if you needed a cable made you know because everything's fiber you know, so they're they're just ready to rock and roll way cooler uh, than my solder station yeah this is just in the back of one of the trucks you know you never know when you're going to need something so these guys will make it for you right then and there more robo 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 Truck, 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 truck. Um, you see, there's another one inside. Oh, yeah. What's this one? Um, I think this is where all the important people sit. They all got their name, Prime Video. That's the executive area. Uh, this is graphics. More graphics. They're feeling festive. They've got the uh, holiday lights up. Really cool. But this one to show you guys a little bit of that. Thanks for the question, Paul. And uh, that's one of the joys of after hours too, as you guys that were there got to ask questions right to the operators in the seats. It was really cool. 
Let's go to the next question. It's great. Nice, nice. Um, Chris Weiner in Lafayette, Indiana says, are there any alternatives to the common 2.4 gig wireless mics that run at five gigs or even six gigs, or is the alternative just UHF? I go ahead, Jeffrey. I've been doing a little bit of research on this since, uh, especially since I'm going to be going to CES and, and of course, using something like a 2.4 gigahertz wireless is almost impossible in an event like that because uh, everybody's trying to use it and you're going to run into dead spots unless you're exactly right next to the to the camera. You'll Because uh, last year when I did that, I got about six feet away from the camera and everything started to cut out. I do have, this is uh, actually an alternative to the, uh, to the roads because this is a UHF-based system. I used that at NAB last year uh, to get uh, two-person uh, audio into the camera there. Uh, and I know that there are some 5.8 gigahertz uh, microphones out there. But once again, I just uh, unless you're in a deserted area um, and you get about you can get about uh, 200 uh, meters away before you start uh, uh, disconnecting. Uh, I think uh, I think UHF is probably your best bet at this point. Go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, speaking, Jeffrey, of NAB, it'd be interesting to run a frequency sweep on a spectrum analyzer to see how many of those frequencies are being used up on a day of a show, because it's got to be pretty clouded, crowded um, spectrum there. Yeah, UHF is way to go. <laughs> next question. Eric Price, Kansas City, up next. Mark Gurman reported yesterday that Apple may soon allow third-party app stores on the iPhone to keep the European Union happy. What production apps would you like to see available from other systems, and what could possibly go wrong? Go ahead, Jeff. Can't hear you, Jeff. Is Jeff there? Did we lose Jeff? We lost Jeff. <laughs> so lost never mind. I was looking at the other screen. Um, yeah, you know, I think that the uh, the real issue is is that. Uh, well, I'll let I'll let everyone. Tom, go ahead. I've always wanted a pro version of apps for the iPad, something that an IT guy could use for utilities like scanning networks and so forth. But uh, they keep locking that down. So that's what I would like. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. I, you know, and, and this may be a personal thing because I'm old enough to have come from the world where AT&T was the only phone service available in America and everybody had landlines and everything worked smoothly. And while there are a lot of things you can criticize about the system, it was built out to be incredibly robust and there wasn't very many consumer problems. We move into this era with all of this competition. And I understand the whole Judge Green ruling and the breakup of AT&T and all the rest of that, but it really didn't lead to much better or cheaper in my personal uh, view of things. And I'm hoping that we don't run into the same thing. Yes, Apple has a closed system, but it works pretty amazingly well, all things considered. As we get more alternative app stores, or if they have to allow third parties into the app store, I hope it doesn't just add so much complexity that things start operating less smoothly and efficiently the way they do now. Uh, sometimes, you know, be careful what you ask for because you get it and it's not better than what you had, but we'll see. Yeah. Um, the, the issue is with a lot of things with all, when you're selling products and everything else, it's a big confidence game. People have to have confidence that what they're going to get is going to work for them. And the problem that that diversifying the app store will have is it will lower confidence. It will lower people's, um, you know, their feeling of how this stuff works. Um, and that will affect 
small developers mostly. So this is this is a rich man's game, right? So this is not this is not a fight between fight for the users or fight for the small developers. The small developers, fifteen percent on someone making less than a million dollars a year, um, is an incredible deal. <laughs> like it's an incredible deal for a developer. I've developed apps for the App Store. I've developed apps for the Mac. I've developed Macs for the PC. I've developed apps for Android. I've worked on all of these things, and the idea that you can just throw something up there and go through a little approval process, which takes a little time, but it's fine. Like, I'm so, I'm sorry, but for the the um, for the app developers that complain about getting stuff into the app store, it's called adulting. It's called planning planning ahead of time and just figuring out how to get it in and following the instructions that you were given. And when we do that, it all works just fine. You know, and so, so the thing is, is that the alternative app stores, here's what's going to happen is that Meta is going to build its own store and then it's going to move Facebook and Instagram and all these other things into that store. And you won't be able to get them through the app store because they want to sell NFTs and all kinds of other things. Um, Epic's going to build its own store and it's going to get a whole bunch of stuff that's exclusively theirs. Amazon's going to build its own store and move, <laughs> move things into it. And as users, we actually get less choice. We don't get more choice. We have, we get forced to either join those other app stores or we get, or we don't get to buy, buy the things that we want to buy or do the things we want to do. So this is actually a huge knife in the back for users, you know? And so, um, it is, it is just, it is a, it is into the kidneys and up to the shoulder blades for the user, you know? And so the, um, and so that's what, that's what they're doing to us. And it's all about rich companies who want to make more money. It is not about little developers. This isn't a good thing for little developers. What, what's good for them is an ecosystem where they don't have to prove who they are for us to buy things from them. And that's the big advantage of the app store is that, that, that they, that, that a little developer who has no marketing can throw something in there and we go, well, I don't know, but I'll give it a shot because it's in the app store. It's gone through the filter. It's gone through all the bits and pieces. Um, and it gives them an incredible amount of confidence. It gives me as a, as a, as a user confidence to buy that app. Um, and if we start getting broken up into this, the other thing that's really good for is intelligence agencies, which are really big fans of this <laughs> because those other stores will probably not be nearly as, um, protected as these other ones here. Um, now, the other side of this is, is there's going to be a bunch of people, probably like me, who are frustrated. Like if, if those apps start showing up somewhere else, they're frustrated. They won't join that, but they'll be mad. Um, by itself, that will not do anything. People being upset doesn't help at anything. But if given the proper focus and context, having a couple thousand or 10,000 people rummaging through your, through your store with focus can really make stores hard to run. <laughs> so, so, um, so you can expect, you know, if someone organizes them, uh, organizes the upset and focuses the upset, you can cause an enormous amount of damage, you know, to a, to a fledgling store. Just imagine every app, if you're an app developer releasing an app and having, you know, a thousand downvotes within minutes, you know, and, 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 and the kind of reviews that make you question whether you should be a developer, <laughs> you know, so generated by AI. So, so the thing is, is that if people are not happy with what they're, what, what you're doing there, it may be a little bit, a little bit of an uphill battle. Now the, the other thing to remember is that Apple will, um, uh, Apple's, you know, by doing this, they're probably blunting. I think, I think Apple leaked this. I don't think, I think that they wanted us to see it. I think that they, want to blunt any any uh, real push or emergency of of trying to add the stupid laws that the uh, that that we're doing here um you know <laughs> the problem with politicians is they're technological children and they're being they're being uh 
um, advised by children, children who have no real real world experience. And so it's just the blind leading the blind or worse. And, um, and so the thing is, is that the, uh, so I think that this, this is something that I obviously have an opinion about. I don't usually share anything that's, that's quite this, but I have no respect for politicians making tech rules because it's like a 12 year old doing surgery, you know, like it's, it, you know, they they just have, they don't, they don't, they don't use email. <laughs> like, and, and I say this from, an extreme amount of experience. <laughs> so, so that's, and that's why I'm so worried about it, of politicians getting into this because I've worked with them and I know exactly how much they know about technology, which is zero. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, so they're just going to muck this up anyway. So we'll, 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 this will be interesting. We won't have to, fortunately, we won't have to think about it until 2024, but we get to plan and prepare until then. So next question. Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. Up next, he says, many of us here use small rig cages, mounts and arms and accessories, but has anyone tried their electronics? The small rig Forevola W60 is a dual transmitter wireless mic for around $150. Is it an interesting mic or just more knockoffs in the space? Go ahead, Mitchell. Um, I do, have not had one in my hands, so I'm sorry I can't directly answer that question, but uh, I can speak to the build quality of stuff made by small rig and everything I've ever bought from them is inexpensive and well-made. So we can only hope. Yeah, small rig's done a pretty good job. And so um, I haven't tested this one, but it, it does look promising. Uh, next question. Matthias Jutlifella is back from Helsinki, Finland. Why does camera? Why do camera manufacturers like Canon limit its ENG cameras, for example, the XA line, to do only PAL or NTSC? You cannot change the setting in camera, unlike, for example, with Sony cameras. Why are why do some cameras have this limitation, or is it set by the manufacturer? Oh, I guess. Oh, I, I think it's because of the way, I think what you're saying is that, that the ones sold somewhere else are only PAL and the ones that are sold in the United States are only NTSC. And that's to keep the regions clear. You know, it's so that you don't buy, uh, you don't buy gray market. You don't buy ones that were possibly sold for a different price overseas and then bring them into the United States. I mean, usually when they lock it down, it's, uh, and it's, it's kind of an absurd thing to do, but it, it does happen. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Bill. Yeah, I, I suspect this also might get into the zone of tariffs. Uh, specific tariffs apply to different zones. We've had problems with this in the past where um, the limitation recording on a particular camera uh, design was there to keep it from impeding somebody else's intellectual property and tariffs. It's just kind of a mess. And I think that maybe have something to do with it. Um, I, usually it's gray market more than tariffs. <laughs> you know, it's, it's usually like they want to make it harder for you to move it from one place to the other. Um, next question. Uh, Douglas Carmichael up next. OpenAI mentions that ChatGPT was trained using Microsoft's Azure cloud-based supercomputing resources. Uh, we've talked about AWS a lot, but what can Azure do that AWS can't? And what are Azure's advantages? Go ahead, Jeffrey. I don't think there's going to be uh, an advantage of one to the other. Basically, what uh, the AI is doing is collecting public information and then regurgitating that into uh, into different uh, ways, shapes, and forms. So it might be the same, uh, slightly different attacks on the on the, uh, a question you might ask or something like that. But it's uh, still the whole thousand monkeys writing Shakespeare type uh, situation. 
Yeah, we're, as a reminder, we're going to be talking about ChatGPT on Friday in detail, so we'll we'll dig into it more there. Um, a, qu- a reminder that we've got two hours of Q&A and not enough questions to get through the first hour, so it'll be a short day today. We'll all go about our business unless you ask more questions, so just let us know if you. it's up to the producers as to how long they want this to run. Um, uh, next question. Next question comes to us from Brett Dykus in New York City, and Brett says, do any panelists have a preferred VR headset? I, you know, I think the Meta Quest is probably, the, the Quest 2 is probably the best set out there, or the Quest 2 Pro or whatever is probably the best one that's out there. I don't think this is a good time to buy a, a headset. I don't think any of the headsets have hit a home run or even, you know, a double. <laughs> it's like a single, like if you want to test something and you want to think about headsets, um, you know, and, and you're doing work in them, I think it, they're worth buying so that you can figure it out. But if you're just looking at enjoyment, um, I probably, this isn't the, probably the time that I wouldn't invest in headsets. I'd probably wait until next, um, I'd, let's, I'd wait until we see what happens next summer. Next question. Uh, Jeffrey Powers is the topic of this one. Paul Wallace is asking, Jeffrey, what are the products coming up that you most want to review for YouTube? And if you had your pick of anything, and who are your favorite product reviewers? Go ahead, Jeffrey. Favorite product reviewers. Um, I don't have anybody in uh, specific. I go through, I pretty much go through the uh, the list. If there's a product that I need to uh, uh, do a little bit of research on, then uh, whoever whoever shows up, uh, I start listening to. As for products, uh, you know, CES is coming uh, just around the corner. I haven't heard anything exciting or innovative uh, as of yet. I have a feeling we're going to be dealing with a lot of AI at uh, CES. And of course, it really depends on what area of expertise uh, that you go to. And a lot of people are really culminating to the, uh, to the startups now, because that's, you know, trying to figure out where the next, uh, where the next thing to hit your, uh, hit your uh, trailer onto to go is going to be. But uh, right now, uh, I'm, I'm doing a couple reviews. We talked about some mics. Uh, I got a couple microphones that are coming out that I'm, I'm going to be reviewing. And then, of course, uh, testing out the, I guess the only other thing is the uh, Elgato. I don't have that new Stream Deck that I'd like to try and see if there's anything that I would use it for. But other than that, nothing in particular. Next question. Next question comes from Chris Weidner in Lafayette, Indiana. Uh, he notes OpenLPOrg, and he says it was mentioned a while back, and a small restaurant uh, a friend owns is looking for something for digital menu boards. Would this be a good fit, or does anyone have a good software alternative with web controls? Hmm. I don't know much about menus. I mean, I think it's a great idea to have menus on them. <laughs> I think it's good. I think most of the menu apps are not very good. So um, I, I think that a handful of them, the ones that really work are the ones that uh, I feel like that you can see pictures of, of, the, of the actual dish. Um, and, uh, and there's actually, I did, um, I was at uh, a restaurant in LA where you could take your phone, you could click on the dish and point at your table and it would put the dish in front of you in AR. <laughs> like it would literally add an AR picture of your, of your it, in, in this case, I think it was soba noodles or something like that. It was like sitting there like, this is what it's going to look like and this is how big it's going to be. And I was like, this is the most amazing menu ever. I'm coming here all the time and I, <laughs> food was good too. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. I think it's a great idea and I can't imagine which uh, uh, device would be the best, but I did sit at a restaurant recently and I watched with great interest how people responded when the wait uh, person would hold that uh, 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 that 
Surface or iPad or whatever uh, and hand it to the person. And usually people would go, what do you do with this? You know, it's like you had to go through a training session. So I think it, it, until people are completely used to being able to deal with uh, tablets, uh, it's going to be a hard thing to uh, get everybody into. There you go, Tom. I've had a little experience with a company called BrightSign, and they do a lot of menu boards. And it's a, you know, they have small devices you put behind the monitors, and you can do a web interface to them. So something like that. You go, Bill. I just never want to see this get to fast food where the taco looks brilliant in the projected array <laughs> and the actual thing that shows up is this sad little <laughs> soaked grease mess like, it just reminds me of japanese restaurants that when you're in tokyo the japanese restaurants that have like the rubbery version of them all across the front except in ar and right in front of you and i thought when i did as soon as i saw that i was like oh yeah this is something that has to happen everywhere because it's just knowing what it knowing what it is it's pretty cool next question Elton Christensen, New York City, says, follow up from HCR's conversation yesterday. Most of the online help I find suggests pricey external hardware for HDR post. Can workflows with the recent MacBooks with those 1600 nit displays be adapt acceptable or adaptable? I don't know. It's a little misspelled in there. Yeah, I mean, I think you can get you can get pretty far. It depends on on what level of production you're doing. So if you're doing something that you're going to put out as HDR on online or on YouTube or something like that, you can probably get away with it. If you're really doing real work and you're going to send it to Netflix or Apple or someone like that, you're going to need a production colorist with a production monitor to really make sure it's just a much bigger surface. And so you're going to need need someone that actually can do the you could get it close. And especially if you know what you're doing, you can probably get it close and measure it. But there's going to be that last three or four percent that you're really going to need somebody with a real monitor to see it. Next question. Next question comes to us from Jeff Cohen. And oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach. There he goes. Says, has anyone tested the Logitech and or Mevo wireless HD multi-camera streaming iOS app? I'll go with Jeffrey. Yeah, it's. Uh, I actually have it. It's. I think it's still in beta, so you can only get it through the uh, test app right now. I always have a problem with iOS phones, uh, wireless phones, uh, especially going through NDI, getting pretty choppy after a while for some reason. I, and I'm not exactly sure why. I I've, have I've some cleaned out uh, iOS devices that uh, shouldn't have anything else running through it. And of course, it's going straight through Wi-Fi to, uh, to go from there. The only other problem that I have with the Mevo uh, multi-cam app is when you switch, it takes, it takes a little bit longer for the actual switch to occur. Next question. Next one comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Is the Tula mic the most complicated, difficult to use microphone of all time? <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. Well, there is a system from Universal Audio, and I'm trying to remember. I was trying to look it up real quick here, and I didn't get it up in time. Uh, it is a microphone modeling. in. It's got three racks and a microphone specifically made to be as neutral as possible. And the system is there so you can model ancient microphones and and dial in real specific frequency responses and things like that. I think that is the most complicated. And I'm trying to remember it's like the UA, not waves or something, but uh it's it's a branded microphone modeling system. I think that outdoes the tool of mic in terms of being the most complicated and difficult to use. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I've seen pictures of it and Paul has demonstrated it on his uh 
uh, after hours commentary. And um, it's cool looking. It's rather small. Um, but the thing that makes it complicated is that you have to sample the uh, the environment uh, that it's in in order for the noise reduction to work properly. Next question. Next question comes to us from Jack Cannon in Phoenix, Arizona. And Jack says, anyone had issues connecting with Elgato key lights, mini and so forth? I switched from my MacBook Pro 16 M1 to my M1 Mac mini yesterday, and it seems to have solved my connectivity issues. Maybe a difference between Wi-Fi on the MacBook Pro and Wi-Fi on the Mac mini? Could be. I will say that my Mac mini, my new Mac mini's Wi-Fi antennas are significantly better than my last Intel version. So I don't know what they did to it, but the range is much further um, than it was before. So it, it very well could be something that was some kind of connectivity issue. And I, I don't have a strong, I don't have a scientific answer there, but I can tell you just anecdotally that it was a huge improvement. Um, next question. Next one comes from Kyle Hammond in Chicago, Illinois. Kyle says, when sending kits, do you send the various equipment in a single hard case with foam or a bag with individual boxes per equipment? Just curious. Uh, go ahead, uh, Jeffrey. When I did remote kits, kits uh, we did uh, Pelican Pelican cases, and we had a really nice long one that even had, uh, uh, we could put the uh, tripod in there in a nice uh, spot. Uh, and so it basically all around in foam. And then the unit for, for us, it was something that we had to, just one unit, just one piece pulls out, connects up onto the tripod. Of course, instructions on top of that. But we talked about this a few days ago in using cardboard. And I've been I've been really looking at different options on that, especially the plastic corrugated cardboard. Yeah, it, you know, we we moved away from the pellet where we have a lot of Pelican cases and the bigger kits, we're still sending them out that way, though we're very much looking at, we've moved for the smaller kits to cardboard um, and it's mostly a weight issue. It's weight for two different things. One is, uh, wait for how much it costs us to get it to the to the to the target, as well as um, a wait in how much it takes for them to carry it in. Like the the sixteen fifties and the other cases that we've sent out, even a fifteen ten for for some people can be a he you know you're adding a lot of weight to something that they have to kind of pull through, especially if you filled it with a bunch of things. And so, um, and it what what got me thinking about it was actually a guest that we had on office hours. We had someone who who does rentals. You know, I can't think of the name of the group right now, but they were doing rentals and they, they use these corrugated, um, as Jeffrey was talking about, plastic corrugated, branded. And so I also looked at the opportunity of, wow, we could brand the, we haven't done the branding yet, but we, we could brand, um, you know, this with our own cardboard. We can make it look cool when you get it. We can, you know, those, those are the things. And because we want to think about it, we're going to be doing as, you know, as people slowly give up on, on hybrids because they're horrible, um, they, uh, we're going to be moving more and more towards having more and more of our speakers coming in from this. So the, the kit thing is not going to go away. It's going to get, it's going to get more intense. And I, I really been thinking a lot about how to really refine that kit experience where you want to think about how, how to pack it, how to brand it, how to set up inside, you know, inserts that give people things like one of the most popular things in our kits is cookies. <laughs> So when you finish it, there's instructions like here's how to do this and here's how to do this. There's a little video instruction and there's a PDF instruction. At the very end, it says, by the way, there's just, the last thing is just go grab that little box. Then there's like a little white box and you open it up. It's some really good cookies. Then it was like, well done. Here's some cookies. And, and it's really, it's really popular. Like everyone laughs about it. But those kinds of things. And one of the things we talk a lot about with uh, our clients when, when we're sending these out for everybody is that 
Um, this is a real great opportunity to send branding, send t-shirts, send, you know, whatever you want to send out, um, you know, is you put them in the box, like, Hey, here's some stuff for you. And that could be for the participants that you might send a kit out to. Um, but that can also be, and I got this mostly thinking about what blue does and, you know, they do events where they send everybody a little kit, you know, as part of what they're doing. And so, so figuring out ways that you can send not only the tech stuff, but you know, it, it's a little spammy to send them just a box, <laughs> but if you send them the kit that they need, and oh, by the way, there's a little compartment here with a t-shirt and, and other things like that. It's a good thing to think about as well. Go ahead, Jeffrey. You know, the funny thing you talk about the cookies, the funny thing was uh, whenever we sent out a uh, a kit, we would get a kit back with all their swag, their socks and their stickers and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, was so, Which was a little concerning because if we had to go from, if we had to take the kit and have them send it to somebody else, that person would have that other person's swag, which was, like I said, a little bit concerning. But the other thing is how they can repack that gear back into the box because you have yeah. the instructions, you have the video instructions, but will they read it? Will they watch it? Or will they just stuff it back into the box and then try and push it down and, and wrap it up and send it back? To your, to Jeffrey, it's a great point that Jeffrey brings up here. And, and that's something that we didn't do well when we first started doing this 10 years ago. We would figure out the smallest box we could put it in. It was the lightest box. It was just like we get it all in there and we didn't get them back. Because people just couldn't figure out how to get stuff back into it. We knew how to do it, but no one else did. And so by making it, by making that box twice as big, by giving it, giving it shaped areas that things go into, um, it really made it a lot easier for people to figure out. You have to think about, and this is something we should, if Jeffrey, I mean, not Jeffrey, Josh is listening. Um, I really think on Monday we should talk about interface at some point and the importance of interface. And when I say interface, I mean everything that someone interacts with. And so this is a thing, how you pack it as the interface. And I think a lot of times we think about the content, the text, but not like how are they actually going to use that? Um, uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Tommy Schantz in St. Paul, Minnesota. And he says, how far back in models do you have to go to get an iPad that has a screen that's okay for color correction? I'll go ahead, Dill. Well, I'm not sure if you have to go back. I mean, for uh, Apple for a long time did, I think, a brilliant thing back in the OS 10 transition. They created a system for what's called managed color. And now, hopefully, uh, they built in technology so that every iOS device should react relatively the same. And you can kind of trust them. So your iPhones, your iPads, anything like that, you should be able, if you have it looking the way you want it to look on your pad, be reasonably con, uh, uh, um, secure that it'll look the same on everybody else who's using the same class of devices. Now, that doesn't mean you can do high-level color correction because color correction is a very finicky thing. And someone like our friend Charles, who does it for a living, really does eliminate every variable possible in order to be absolutely sure that a color he or she is seeing as a color corrector on screen is exactly what they're looking for. But in general, I think it's gotten better rather than worse in terms of color fidelity across classes of devices. So I, I kind of question the, uh, your question was, how far back do you have to go? It's really can you stay modern with your devices so that they can take advantage of some of this color consistency technology? Next, next question. Next question from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. iPad OS 16.2 on an M1 and M2 support external displays as a separate dual screen instead of the traditional mirroring. What would your use case be for this feature? Go ahead, Tom. 
Apps that shine with more screen real estate or multi-screens, for instance, editing in Resolve would probably benefit greatly. Yeah, I think Resolve is going to be the one that jumps jumps into my my mind immediately. So uh, some of us are beta testing that, and we'll give you more input as we play with it. But I'm definitely going to be um, now that I'm a little bit out of my push, be um, as early as today or tomorrow, be testing it with two monitors and see what see what it actually does. I think that also we'll see developers start to develop for it. You know, so it's out there, but we have to see how they actually take advantage of it. But I expect to see more and more two screen experiences as we move forward. Uh, next question. Todd Raines in Allen, Texas. Up next, transferring files is a pain. From an SD card to a PC at 120 megabits a second is slow. Am I spoiled? I recorded two hours and 15 minutes of ProRes HQ, which is a file of about 250 gigabytes. What are your solutions and experiences? Yeah, uh, you know, faster SD cards <laughs> is, is one thing um, is 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 a piece of that. Um, a lot of us are using um, SSDs uh, or external some kind of external uh, recorders, and we pay a lot of attention to the speed of the chip because the USB C uh, connection is capable of a pretty fast um, connection, depending on the type of interface that you have. Um, the the main thing is 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 a lot of us are using external um, uh, drives and NVMe specifically. Um, so. Um, a lot of times I'm even building some of my own MVMEs. Let's see here. Hold on. Let's see. Whoops. There's two examples. You hear all my drives falling around, but they're just little MVMEs. There's, there's nothing moving. So like this one is made by a Neo and I, I don't, or I, yeah, a Neo. This is a um, M2. This is a, um, an M2 SSD enclosure. And this like, it literally has a fan that pushes stuff down, down the path there. Um, and then, oh, I got, got two of the same one. I thought I had. Um, oh, this is another one by the same. Oh, no, this is uh, um, Oyen, which is someone we saw a guy picked out uh, in um, uh, is it at the Sinegar uh, coverage. Yeah, the, Cine the Sinegar coverage, and I got one, and it works great. This is the Helix. And so, but recording to these is going to take a much, is going to take a lot more advantage of your of your transfer speed than your SD card. So the SD card is a little bit more convenient until you have to transfer it. <laughs> so then it's a lot less convenient. So you just have to decide which way you want to go. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, and just make sure that you're not dumbing it down because I do this, I, I'm an idiot. I reach, I have a fast card and I reach for an old card reader and it's USB 2.0 and I just, oh darn, that's going to limit me right there. So I try to keep things on Thunderbolt or fast connectivity for all my external readers if I possibly can. It really kind of keeps the throughput up there. Yeah, next question. Uh, looks like you'll, uh, Jonathan Mirshan in Buenos Aires. Hope I'm getting that close to right. Uh, Michelson, it looks like. Okay. Has anyone tried Adobe's Project Shasta? It has AI-based video editing and another module that does AI audio cleanup. Any interesting use cases for the former? And do we know how the latter works? Go ahead, Jeffrey. So yeah, actually, I just did a video with this uh, a couple days ago. It's now called podcast.adobe.com, and uh, just switch it over here. So basically, you have the quick tools up on top where you can enhance the speech and you can do your mic check. But this is the uh, this is the actual uh, podcast editing tool that they're really promoting right here. Uh, so I created a couple different podcasts, did some quick editing, so you can, like for instance, if you take out, if you have all the ums in there or anything like that, 
That's where these little dots come in. That's all the uh, dead space. Or I can actually take out a, a word. Uh, like if I wanted to take out Peter, I just had to do this and boom, and it's gone. And then as you hearing that, I don't think I have this set up so you can hear it, but as you'd hear that, it would take that uh, perfectly out. Background music and everything else. It's just, it's really nice and easy to do in any type of podcast situation for editing and is definitely going to be if if I was started doing audio podcasts uh, exclusively again I would start uh, using it through this system good Mitchell this is coming from a guy <clears throat> that used to rock reels on a tape machine and a splicing block with a razor blade and uh, looking at it it was interesting I you know I'm curious about the uh, Shasta audio version and I looked at it, and it does do exactly what it says it's going to do. The only thing it's missing so far is that there's a timing associated with uh, reading a script or a copy, and it doesn't quite understand that. So that when there's a pause there, sometimes you want a breath, or sometimes you want the timing to be just a little bit of a pause before you start the next sentence. And um, it's not smart enough yet to be able to handle that. They make these little... Um Made these little choppers. I don't know if you've ever seen them. They 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 show them in the in, at night, um, in the middle of the night. These little half hour things about this little chop anything. So you take your little you you take your um uh your your little things and you push it up and down and then you get a whole bunch of chopped onions. You push it up and down, you get a whole bunch of chopped you know things. And the, it's really exciting that you can do it so quickly and easily. When you're what you're giving up when you use that chopper uh, to to do that is developing good knife skills. You know, like that that actually will work everywhere. And, and so the thing that I would say is that the, it looks fine. Um, and if, you know, and I think that you could do it, but I, I think that there is a real, I, I don't like, I, and I, I will not say that I'm an expert at it, but I don't cut shows, um, trying to find the easiest tool to do it. Cause there's probably easier tools for me to use. I do it so that I build up skill sets inside of an app so that when I want to do something else, I'm not starting from scratch. Like I know how to move around the app. I know a bunch of the quick, the quick keys. I know how to do all those things. And um, like I'm the one that I'm working on now, I've been doing logic. I'm going to move it to Fairlight, not because I think Fairlight will do better, but because I want to learn Fairlight. <laughs> you know, like I want to learn how it does that. I want to get quick keys and I want to understand how that actually works, um, especially when you're doing something every week. Um, the opportunity to build skills um, on something that is relatively basic and uh, is really, really valuable. And so just be, just think hard about things that do things automatically because people want to do them easy, but it also um, means that you can't actually do it. Like something else is doing it for you and you're losing the ability to build up those 10,000 hours that people talk about or 10,000 mistakes if you're listening to Zen, if you're a student of Zen Buddhism. Um, and so that's just the thing to think about is it's a real opportunity to learn um, and, and you give that up when you hand it over to uh, something else. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, I totally agree. If you get a chopper and then all of a sudden you get a bigger onion that doesn't fit the chopper, what are you going to do? That's that's for sure. That's why I, you know, that's why I've been using a lot of VMix uh, over uh, over Wirecast, but I'm still using Wirecast because it's it's cross platforming. I don't know. I don't know where the next event is going to be. If I'm using a Mac, I'm going to probably be using Wirecast over VMix and mm -hmm. things like that. I, and to point uh, that Mitch talked about with the uh, with the, it's all about cloud recording at this point so even when you start recording that you have to be aware of how you're recording it because uh, I would hit the start button I'd start talking right away 
And then I'd find that the first word or two got chopped off because the recorder didn't actually start yet. But yet, if I put too much of a space in there, all of a sudden I have this pregnant pause that I cannot get rid of, uh, even through that that small editing. But this is all in beta, and uh, and uh, Andrew and Mark are the uh, leads, and and they're they're very open to uh, getting questions. Uh, and uh, problems that they can help resolve so to make it a little bit better of a program for quick edits. Good, Mitchell. There's a philosophical side to this, and I know it's not Sunday, but that is that you need to constantly challenge yourself to try new things or new software. And it's very easy for me at 68 to be very comfortable with Adobe Audition and continue on my way uh, editing you know, with the speed and skill that I have with that program. But to learn Logic or Pro Tools or Shasta, um, you know, kind of challenges a little bit to try something different that gets out of your comfort zone. So it's it's good to try. Um, it's going to iterate uh, a few more times before it starts doing the things like Jeffrey was saying. So they fix those little tiny problems. But that's why they're testing it. They're looking for this kind of feedback. And challenge yourself. Do something different. Next question. Ike Potter in Hanover, Germany, comes to us with our next question. What's the best Telestration app out there using a Wacom One with a Mac Mini? Or will we please see Alex's self-made app become available in 2023? Go ahead, Tom. Well, Tom Reynolds and I use an app called Whiteboard. It's this one right here. And we've been talking to the developer. And the developer is... Uh, actually looking into making a Telestration app uh, like Whiteboard using its engine, but with even a cleaner interface. Right now we're having to use a garbage mat in from each side just a little bit. Yeah, I think that, I think that the, uh, with, you know, uh, I think that the one that I, you know, the virtual, um, uh, I can't think of it right now, you know, Michael Forrest's. <laughs> thing that just, just, just jumped out of my uh, my head as I was saying. Video it. pencil. Video pencil, I think, is probably the best one out there right now. Um, and so uh, I think he's he's done a pretty good job. It's it's a little heavier than I would than I would use, um, but but it's uh, but it's pretty good. And I think we're pretty close on the app. So we'll stay 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 by twenty twenty three. We'll definitely have it out, um, even if I have to write it myself. <laughs> like I'm just going to sit down and figure out how to do this. Um, next question. Paul Buchanan, Columbus, Ohio, up next, looking for a dock for my M1 MacBook Pro. Need two HDMI or DP outs along with Ethernet and a few USB 3 ports, A or C, doesn't matter. Any recommendations? Good, Jeff. OWC is my go-to for, for docs uh, for, for any solution. And let me see if I can successfully share this real quick. Uh, e even their most basic, which is called uh, creatively Thunderbolt dock. Uh, you can do two displays, uh, Ethernet, all the other uh, goody ports, including, by the way, uh, let me just double check this one has, I believe this one also has an SD slot. So for the previous question, this is also going to give you faster uh, SD transfer. Um, and then there's a, there's a pro model uh, above this that um, offers more of all those great ports, including uh, faster uh, Ethernet. So um, either of those two are going to do the trick. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I agree with Jeff. Uh, OWC is a good place to start. Uh, they have one called an OWC Thunderbolt Hub, 
which has three Thunderbolt ports on it, USB, dual displays, display support up to 8K. Um, and they have a smaller one. It's a square uh, device, and I, I, I can't remember the name of it. But you can take one Thunderbolt input and multiply it to three, which could come in handy if you only have one uh, open uh, port available. Next question. George Witham, our friend in Venice, California, says, what is the preferred uh, compact mirrorless camera for use with USB webcam functionality to make a step up from the Logitech Brio? Sorry, I'm just looking at it. I, I mean, I think the, the first step up from the Logitech Brio is the is the, going to be the link. You know, it's going to be the Insta360 link is a dramatic step up from there. The next step up you go into, now you go into either used the Panasonic G series, almost all of them from G3 or G4 up, <laughs> or, you know, we'll do that. The Sony, 50, I think it's the 4100s or 5300s. Those are really good in the four, four or $500 range. Um, and then after that, you're getting into... Black magics, in my opinion, um, with your ATEM. So those are the things that I would do. But I mean, if you're looking for something that, that isn't much ex more expensive than um, than the Brio, but looks a lot better than the Brio and gives you a lot more control, I would look at the it's the Insta360 link. Um, but if you want soft bokeh, that's when you have to start going into larger sensors. Um, next question. Todd Rains in Allen, Texas. Up next, I recorded the ProRes HQ on my Blackmagic Design Video Assist being fed from the ATEM Mini Extreme. Does all the data come through the ATEM to make the best of the ProRes HQ recording on the VA? When I look at it, it seems like it does. Uh, yeah, if you're capturing uh, ProRes HQ, it will capture, it's getting a signal that is actually way higher quality than ProRes HQ. <laughs> so it's compressing down your raw signal uh, to, to ProRes HQ, but it should take full advantage of um, that signal. That uncompressed signal that's coming in from HDMI is a typically um, either an eight or 10 bit signal uncompressed at, at um, either 1.5 or three gigs, um, you know, uh, uh, gigabits per second. And that's being compressed down into something much smaller, which is the HQ. So it, it, it's, you're absolutely getting the quality and that's a pretty standardized format made by Apple. So it's gonna be what HQ can give you. Next question. Andrew Lipnick in San Francisco, when scheduling a standard Zoom meeting, is there a feature to automatically turn on captions? I don't know if there is to automatically. I think the user has to turn them on. I don't think that they, I think you have to make them available in the meeting as well. So as a, I think that that's in the, the admin settings. So you go into the admin settings and you have to make uh, captions available. And then I think the user is still going to have to turn them on. Um, next question. Chris Weiner in Lafayette, Indiana has one here. Apple Freeform is to me a more flexible notes app. Has anyone tried it yet? And if so, what are your initial impressions? Go ahead, Jeff. I have initial impressions, even though I have not tried it yet. I've been waiting. It requires iOS 16.2, which I've been waiting for. Didn't want to do the beta. It's out now, which is great. So everyone can download it, uh, the release version, and try it out. So, yeah, the promise is uh, way more features and functionality than what Notes does. A lot of features that were part of Google Keep is, is now in this. So, um, yeah, I can't wait to try it out. You know, the, the one caveat. I'll always say about collaborative tools like this is there's no indication yet, at least that I've seen, that someone can join even as a reader from a browser. So meaning, you know, if you're locking all the participants into the Apple ecosystem, you better be sure that everyone you need to collaborate with 
is on an Apple product. Go ahead, Tom. Yes, as a collaborative tool, this thing seems to be very feature rich. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm. We'll get into it in after hours at some point in the next day or two because I'm really interested. I just haven't had time. Monday and Tuesday are usually my meeting days, so uh, expect to see me bouncing into after hours and looking for someone who wants to do some collaborative stuff um, today. <laughs> so, so sometime probably this afternoon, we'll we'll see if we can't play with it. Uh, next question. Comes from Roz McNulty in Vancouver, Canada, and she asked, what is the best video editing with screen capture and, sc and sound for a PC? And she specifically mentioned Femora versus Camtasia. If you're just doing a raw screen capture, um, Camtasia is going to be better. It's got a lot of features in it, so more than just a raw one. It's got tons of stuff. I'm not as familiar with Filmora, Filmora but Camtasia is kind of known as the best um, screen capture that for the for the PC. If you want to take, if you find that any for any reason it's choppy or it's overdriving your your PC, so if your PC is showing a, a high, um, you know, anything over about sixty percent uh, usage on the CPU usage, you may end up with frame drops and performance lag. Uh, then you may want to think about using some kind of external recorder. So whether it's a, a an assist, you know, some something you can get a little HDMI one that Courtney's talked about in the past that does H two sixty four. You can get ones that, you know, a little bit more and they'll record ProRes. All those things are, are available, um, you know, in that, uh, um, the, in those. And what it does is it, it just looks like another monitor to the to your PC and it takes a lot of pressure off of it. Um, I've done a lot of captures in like high-end 3D packages that were a little touchy if I started trying to record the screen, not because they didn't want me to, but because I was using up a bunch of resources that, that um, they needed. <laughs> so I learned to record most of my stuff on an outboard um, system. So that's another option. Now, next question. Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana, says, we're throwing around some ideas for one of the historical nonprofits I work with, looking for suggestions other than the standard recreation videos. Is there anything that would be cool for the 1850 to 1920 time period people are looking for? Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. We just recently did something that was kind of cool. It was a historical building that still exists today. And we went to the Historical Society and got um, actual pictures of the building back in the uh, earlier mid-1800s. And uh, what we did was we matched the camera angle and the focal length and everything and shot the new building, or at least the renovated building, that showed, it up, showed a uh, thing over the years. And then we brought in uh, some of the actors from the time period, and uh, we um, used Mocha to, to, uh, uh, to keyframe them out. And uh, it was kind of cool because we could apply a sepia tone to it and show the new, the old, the new, the old. So it's, a, it's an interesting little uh, uh, gag to uh, make things look interesting. Yeah. Um, if it's an object, if it's a, it's a thing or even a building, you know, one of the things to think about is being able to digitize it and turn it in, you know, model it and let people see, like be able to set it on their you know, on their table, you know, and they could, if let's say it's a, let's say it's a locomotive or something, you could go around it, you know, get, build a 3D model and have something that they can see it with and then may possibly highlights of like, this is what this is and this is what this is. Now, once you figure out what those highlights are and you research them, you could also build something into an app or, or into something that, that basically lets you go around that object if you're at the museum. And as you rotate around, it starts to highlight things like this is what this does and it pops out and explains things to you. So, I mean, if you're thinking about if you're just throwing the ball down the field, those are some stuff. So it's an app that would be something really valuable if you never went to the museum. 
but if you go to the museum, it's got a bunch of extra things that are that are there that 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 annotate what you're looking at. You know, adding context, adding understanding, all the things like if you were going with a tour guide, but you could build something that is individualized and at someone's own speed. Um, that is, you know, you use you use the information you would normally have from a tour guide, but you have it all in the phone and it can then visualize things and build things out and even show an X-ray of it. All these things are possible because of the way the phone is now using your movement, both the LiDAR from an iPhone, um, but also just the, just the parallax. And it's locking it's locking the, the hooks into that. And especially if you have the object you just digitized, you can, you can lock the phone very, very much so that nothing's slipping or moving around. And now you can start adding all kinds of things and building X-ray versions of it and connecting things and showing, like, if it was, again, if it was a locomotive, you could see the piping. They're like, this is where it is. But if you looked at it in the boiler, it could open up the boiler <laughs> in front of you and let you see what's inside and see all the bits and pieces and go, go through there. So there's a lot of really interesting things. I will say that if it's a location or, or you're t trying to take back to a certain place, uh, still one of the most Im impactful hangouts that I ever worked on was for me was going back and I believe it was to the 18th century and all it was was a classroom getting to go and there were period, you know, people who could act in that period with that language, understood it and could cook. You were in a kitchen and the kids could ask them any question they want while they're cooking dinner and they're in, in an 18th century kitchen talking in 18th century and answering their questions as if you went back in time. And I just was like, the kids just blew up. Their minds just opened up and they were just sitting there asking all these questions. And these, the, the period actors were not just actors. They were, they were real experts. They really knew it. And they would just answer it as if you were asking some random person that was cooking and, you know, like with the, with all of its own parallels, it was, uh, it was just stunning. I, I, I just was like, this is the future of teaching history is to take you there and let you talk to people who can actually make you feel like you're talking, you, you have a window into the past. It's just really, really fun. Uh, next question. Sean Johnson in New York. Up next, has anyone tried YouTube premieres? Does it actually play the video at the premiere time or does it just become available to be played by viewers? He's trying to simulate a live playout without having to do an actual live playout to a stream. Go, Jeffrey. Well, first of all, there's two different versions to that. Uh, you have what's called instant premieres. That means that uh, the second that you hit the uh, you hit the public, you're public, and you're published, it's gonna it's gonna go through a countdown and then uh, instantly premiere. And then you have the delayed premieres, as as you're wondering about. It will at that time if you say at four o'clock on Thursday, I want it to uh, play. It will start the play now. Once again. It's going to go through a countdown, and some people have this option to actually replace the countdown with a uh, with their own videos, and that's and YouTube's been playing with that in the last couple of months, which is really cool because then you can have your own. Hey, this show's about to start instead of one of the YouTube uh, uh, created uh, countdowns there. Uh, but uh, yes, it will play exactly at the time that you ask it to play. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, uh, and there's some other cool features about that, especially if you schedule your premiere, which is really the the 
the point and the value of it because you also, it, for all intents and purposes, it will be the equivalent of doing a live event. So you get an event page that you can post and share and, and promote. Um, people, when they go to that event page, they can click to set a reminder if they want it so that in YouTube, they'll get a reminder when that is about to premiere. Um, and then the other thing is on that event page, like a live event, there's live chat. So you can and watch it with your viewers and, and chat and comment. And uh, like a live show, uh, viewers can rewind, uh, but they can't fast forward. So even though it's playing, it becomes available to play. And only when it's done playing and completion, then it'll be like a regular YouTube video. Next question. Harshid Trivedi here on the panel today says from Daytona Beach, Florida, what is the most cost-effective way to do 3D scans at the current point? Maybe to capture rooms or to model items. He wants to be able to share the knowledge to accessibility-driven nonprofits. Polycam. This is right now the, the most uh, cost-effective way to do uh, 3D, scan, 3D scans. Um, it's not you know, again, I come from someone who has a, I have a uh, LiDAR over my shoulder here that is significantly better so i'm a little spoiled so i go well the polycam's okay but but you can get some reasonably good 3d things that are very accurate i'm su surprisingly accurate out of polycam so for and that's good for scenes like rooms and so on and so forth you can also look at reality scan which is even cheaper because it's free um and that just became available and it is um it's uh free and it it, i it's really even with polycam for objects although i wouldn't use it for it's really good for objects, not good for locations. Um, next question. Next one comes to us from Todd Raines in Allen, Texas. Is there any such thing as a dummy SD card dongle to a USB SSD to achieve faster speeds? Go, Jeffrey. Technically, yes. I've actually been seeing this in the 3D print world where they have the uh, micro SD card and then a little ribbon cable coming out of it. And then uh, you can attach it to an SSD. The biggest problem is the power that's delivered through there. So you're going to have to have something that uh, that supplies its own power on that. Um, I have not used it myself, but uh, it's not probably going to be any faster than what the, uh, what the SD card is going to do. It might even be a little bit slower uh, in the processing. The only other option is you have the uh, SD to Wi-Fi signal adapter, which could, then you can do some sort of wi wireless signal to a computer and then an SSD. Yeah, and, and but but also look at if there's any HDMI out of your camera, like try to get the HDMI out of the camera. I mean, it's going to be a way better signal than anything you're getting out of the USB connection. Uh, next question. Next question comes to us from Bobby Rafferty in Central Florida. Has anybody been using shooting in ProRes on Apple iPhones? And if so, how's their experience been? Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, probably 40% or so of the work I've been doing for corporate clients lately has been doing exactly that, shooting on an iPhone in ProRes. You do not get as much dynamic range, and you you know you can shoot in RAW formats and things like that for more post-production. But if you simply want a good quality video experience, and you're working in something like I do with Final Cut, where I it's just super fast and super fluid and kind of brainlessly wonderful to be able to take a ProRes file, throw it in the NLE, cut it quickly without any transcoding or anything and get a really nice looking product out the back end for quick turn stuff. I do it all the time and it's smooth and really easy. Next question. 
Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas is back again with, if Alex is using the Insta360 link today, can he briefly turn on the HDR to show us the difference? Is uh, This is kind of a follow-up to my earlier question today, he notes. Yeah, I can't do it right now. I'm, I'm not set up for that right now. But but the um, but I I will say that it's not that it won't look better. It might look better. It's just that it's not it's not really going to be HDR. And we'll have to. The reason I'm going to say that it doesn't help me to set it up right now because I would have to set this up and then run it through you know analyzation for us to show you what what's actually happening there. But the chances of it actually outputting true HDR um, is almost zero, um, just just out of the way that the UVC connection works. Um, but uh, but I think that uh, it it may do something where it's in, in improving the highlights um, and getting more detail back is quite possible. Next question. Next one comes from Tyler Roberts in Chambersburg. Um, can we review how to bump a Zoom meeting to 1080? I just got access to a business account. Uh, to 1080, the only way to do that is to make a request. So what you want to do is you want to um, send it, you want to go to support and send in a request and say, this is why, you know, we're doing this kind of work. It's high profile and we, it would really make a difference. We're showing things in a video file that, that would require more resolution and, um, and then see if you can't get them to update it. So especially if you've got 10 or more licenses in the business account. Um, I think that you have a good chance these days of doing that. But remember that there's more to it than just the size of what you're doing. There's also what kind of shows and they'll, you know, there's some, an, some analyzation that they have to do on their end to make, to, to clear it. So it's, there's no guarantee. Bumping is just getting to 720 and anybody can call Zoom. Anybody can go to support and say, I, I want 720, you'll get it. They're not giving 720 out to every person that signs up because if they can't tell the difference, then it's just added bandwidth for no reason. <laughs> so, so, um, but if, but if you, if you ping zoom and say, I, I would like 720 on my account, you should, anybody with any paid account should be able to get 720. Um, and then 1080 is, um, something you have to ask for. And it's a little trickier to get. Um, next question. Harshi Trivedi back with us again from Daytona Beast. Alex, would you have any music to showcase like the Zim music or such? You know, it's hard for me to, uh, on the fly to um, uh, to just come up with some music, and I, you know, I'll probably get flagged if I put it up here. So, but maybe we should do some kind of music thing in in after hours, just just like people playing stuff. My my, uh, maybe we'll find some time or some breakout room where we can we can sit there and and like play music that we like. <laughs> You know, like and talk about it and so on and so forth. That that might be kind of fun. Um, my my daughter and I do this thing where we, you know, pretty much anytime we're listening, she plays a song and I play a song and she plays a song and I play a song. And we try to play a song that if you like this song, you like this song. And so it kind of just slowly moves around. And that's how I learn new songs, and that's how she learns old songs. <laughs> so anyway, so anyway, and and it, it expands both of our uh, uh, both of our listening and our, our taste is very melded together now because we know you know we we like a lot of stuff. Although sometimes I get a little too edgy. You know, I was listening to rap last night, and she didn't. She was like, "I let's move on." Um, next question. Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana, is up next. He says the Acasis, I believe, A C A S I S, ten in one USB C hub with SSD enclosure is my new iPad dock I'm using, but having difficulty difficulty managing sound sources it always defaults to the last plugged in device is there any better way to manage this i don't know whether that's the hub or whether that's the 
whether that's the computer. The computer will oftentimes think that what you want is the last thing you plugged in. Um, and that's kind of the way that I, th- I think Apple views that as a feature, not a bug. <laughs> so, so I don't I don't think that that's going to be, I think that might be hard. I don't think it's the hub. I think it might be the the actual, uh, um, yeah, it might, be, it might actually be the, the, the computer thinking about that. Um, and and because mo- generally that, that would be the behavior it would expect you to do is like, oh, I plug this in because what I hate is on my on my iPhone. Um, if I I'm listening on a pair of he- Bluetooth headphones and I answer the phone, and it will take me off of them, <laughs> like it'll take me off my Bluetooth headphones. Like the only ones that work are the Apple ones, and I'm and I it's super frustrating. Like I have to I have to manually select my headphones, even though I was just listening to a song on said headphones. Super uh, super frustrating. Um, uh, we're just about uh, out of questions. If, if, if you want to, um, if you want to ask any more, we've got a little bit more time. So if you, if you want to do that, just let us just throw another question or two in. Otherwise we'll close up a little early. We'll have a, a more time on Wednesday. Next question. Uh, Tyler Roberts in Chambersburg is back again. What are better and best solutions for an easy to use at home broadcast kit? Now he wants us to assume a computer. What are the options at approximately 500 and, uh, you, uh, 750 to $1,000 us budgets. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. It, it I, depends on what kind of broadcasting you're doing. If you're doing radio broadcasting, you can buy uh, an FM uh, transmitter that's type accepted, must be part 15 accepted by the FCC to make it legal. And it'll probably work through most of your house unless you get lots of floors. And if you want to bump it up a bit and have some more fun with it, you could do what I do and run a radio station behind you. And that's uh, what's, what this is right here. That's Sam Broadcaster, and uh, it allows you to uh, to catalog the music and play it back just like a radio station does with jingles and all that kind of fun stuff. That's assuming you're doing radio. <laughs> yeah, if, if you're just looking at a home broadcast kit as like how to look good on Zoom and how to be part of, of something like that, um, I would say that the... Uh, the five hundred dollars is a little bit of a squeeze, but but here's what I would the the, the first uh, the first two things that I would probably get as a Link three hundred and sixty and a um, and an MV seven. Like if I just said, okay, if you only can send, have two things, it's a little over five hundred dollars. Those two things are going to make a big difference. Now you're still going to have to find what your light source is going to be, um, and so that's the next thing for you to look at. Normally, I would say lighting is more important than the camera, but having that camera control is pretty slick, you know, like it is, it's a pretty big deal. So um, the bigger the source, the better, uh, as far as the, the source that I'm being lit by now in this in little studio that I have here, to put in perspective is five feet wide and 30 inches deep, and then it's at an angle. So um, so that is, uh, you know, like big sources are really nice. Uh, if you can get them, a lot of people will buy these little lights, and the problem is, is that they just, they, they're much more sourcey <laughs> because they're much smaller. So um, think about that. Um, but, but then, and then you can start thinking about your background and so on and so forth. Um, next question. Next one comes to us from Harshid again. In this case, he says, what are your thoughts on the Stream Deck Pro after a month or more of usage? You know, the, the hard part is I haven't used it as much because I was so in production that I didn't have time to use it. But now I'm out of production and I'll be integrating it with everything else that I'm doing here. So stay tuned. Uh, the jury's still out, but uh, we, we will, a lot of us are going to start playing with these pretty quickly. Um, next question. Harshid back in again. This time he says, can you mount a Brio on a mic boom arm if it's quarter 20, I think? Go ahead, Jeffrey. 
Yes, you can. You need an adapter to do so. I thought I had an adapter right on my desk, but I guess I don't. But yeah, it's just a simple cap adapter. There's also one that has a ball joint on it, so you can make uh, uh, different adjustments if you want to. But there's a few different options out there. Yeah, you go, Bill. I'm going back a ways, but I think when I got my Brio originally, I was surprised because it had a little mount in there, and I actually had to pull it out, and I was surprised because I thought I was going to strip uh, threads or something like that. Uh, they may have changed the, the way it ships since then, but I had to remove something to get the quarter 20 exposed on the bottom of the Brio, and then from that point on, you can do anything. It feels like you're going to break it, but it just pulls out. It's just yeah. it's just rubber or just plastic or whatever, and you just, you're just like... Oh, this this cannot be the way that this works. Right. And you twist it and you twist it and you're like, this cannot, this cannot be how this happens. And then you just pull it out and you're like, really, really, you, is that what you did? Like you know, like it's because it, you, you feel like you're gonna tear the tear the camera apart. Uh, so I, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And this, First user this is trauma. What it's like. This is what's like on the bottom right there. Yeah. Right. But that's what's uh, left yeah, when the plastic thing comes out. And it's perfect. It's a quarter twenty and it works universally. But but yeah, it's it's, it's a scary thing to do. All right. Well, thank, thanks so much uh, for another uh, great morning. Um, Slalox Reversal, 77,000 miles, 125,000 kilometers. Um, so that, that was pretty good. Um, just some updates to today. Uh, we have the Stream Deck Lab with David Paskin, and that is at uh, 1.30 p.m. Pacific Standard. Uh, we have the Reader Workshop with Mitchell at 3 p.m. Um, and, of course, uh, you can see behind the scenes for conversations with Tony Mobley. That'll start at 4 p.m. today. Uh, 5 p.m. is the actual show, so you can also watch Tony's show. It's great. Uh, he's, he's doing, um, and he'll have uh, a conversation. We should put into who the conversation is in our notes. Anyway, but but we, at least we have notes. <laughs> you know, I feel like I feel like we're growing up to a real radio station because I've got I've got the taglines for the front cells um, now now in front of me. So I was like, oh, this is good. This is good. Like it just popped up right at the right time. And I was like, look, I was like, I don't know if I have any notes. And suddenly it was like, click, 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 click. Uh, you know, Chad popped something in. Josh popped something in. It's great. So great job on the back end of organizing that. We'll keep on making that better. Uh, but it's really, really great to have it right when I get to the end of the show or whenever any of us get to the end of the show. Uh, thanks to the producers for all the great questions. Um, kept a good, good little conversation going here. And thanks to the panelists. We can't do this without you. And um, and then also, of course, thanks to the great team making this possible on the back end. Um, and uh, one thing we need in the front cell is what we're doing tomorrow because I can't keep track of it anymore because I don't work on them. So they're not in my head in the same way. Um, but I believe we have something great. Remember, um, uh, chat GPT is on Friday. So that should be a lot of fun. All right. Let's jump, go ahead and jump into after hours. I think it's the FX7. Oh, it's the FX7. It's the FX7. I just couldn't remember because it wasn't right in front of me. Now that things are out there, FR7, not FX7, FR7, which is the One FX, but it's the FX6, but with motors. It's the FX6 with motors. So, PTC. We're going to have, it's a PTC with a full frame sensor. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. I'm so jealous of the Greg. Right now. I need one, but I need the money more right now. But oh man, Dak, wait a minute—it costs money. That's not it right. It does. <sighs> Sony's breaking out this whole thing where they charge charge money. They make you give them money for things. It's really a horrible trend. Right, oh, see you guys. Can you say eval?